If you've been here at all for the last five weeks, you know that we've been doing a series on Jesus' woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And last week, Phil talked about the danger of silencing the truth. And that was actually the final woe. I don't know if that was said uh, by Phil or if any of you realized it, but that was the last one. So we made it through all the woes. Uh, But we're not quite done because Jesus caps everything off which he has said, and which we've been talking about for the last five or six weeks, with a powerful conclusion that adds perspective to everything that he's said so far. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. But before we read these last couple of verses in Matthew 23, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. And when I say back to the beginning, I really mean back to the beginning. I don't mean back to the beginning of Matthew 23 or the beginning of Matthew. I mean, like, the very beginning, Genesis, first book of the Bible. And I mean the first verse of the first book. So this is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, verse 1 is pretty straightforward, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. But verse 2, verse 2 is something else, isn't it? The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I think that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, or at least to the parts of the Bible that I'm familiar with. It's like this peak backstage behind the curtain of history, and it's hard to describe what's there, but... It sure is fascinating. Now, I bet if you got the right scholars in this room, they could talk about that verse all night. And uh, they could say a lot more than I could. But there's really just one part of it that I want to zero in on tonight. And that's the phrase, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Have any of you guys seen the Book of Eli, that movie, The Book of Eli? I don't want to give anything away for anyone who hasn't seen it, but at the end of it, Denzel Washington, he says that. He's reciting it. He's like, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And it's just like, ooh, it sends chills up and down my spine. Good movie. Um, But anyway, the word hovering is very interesting, that verb hovering, because it has certain connotations in the Hebrew that's easy for us to miss. The lexicon I looked at said that the Hebrew word here doesn't just mean to float steadily over. That's what we think of when we think of hover. That's what I think of when I think of hover, like the hoverboard in Back to the Future or like a flying saucer with like little green men in it. It hovers. Um, It actually means to brood over young ones with tender love. So like a bird over its nest of eggs. Uh, or recently hatched babies. That's what this word hovering, that's the connotation of it, to brood over young. So the picture that this peak behind the the curtain of history gives us is of the Spirit of God hovering over this primordial, unorganized material like a mother bird would over its nest. And just like a mother bird cares for her eggs until they come to life and then nurses them into maturity, so also God's spirit hovered over that initial creation and brought it to life and maturity through God's care. It's a very tender 
very maternal image, actually, and it's easy to miss that. So keeping that in mind, let's get back to Matthew 23. Now remember, Jesus has just finished this scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. He's called them hypocrites, sons of hell, blind, blind guides, snakes, a brood of vipers. But now, in his conclusion, his tone shifts. And here's what he says. This is Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So do you see now why I wanted to start with Genesis? Jesus says, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. In other words, Jesus wants to hover over the people of Jerusalem. You know, he wants to brood over them as if they were his young. Just like the Spirit of God hovered over the waters at the creation, in the very beginning, the desire of God's heart was to nurture creation to life and maturity. And when God walked the earth as Jesus 2,000 years ago, Jesus, Jesus manifested that same desire. So we have this beautiful continuity between God's Spirit in the beginning of Genesis and Jesus' attitude towards Jerusalem and Matthew because both are essentially using the same metaphor. I love that, I think that's really cool. But in addition to recognizing how cool that is, I think the other remarkable thing we need to recognize is who Jesus is saying he wants to nurture to life and maturity here. The people he's saying this to are specifically the people who have been unwilling. Right? These are the same people he's just spent the rest of the chapter rebuking. And if you've been with us for the last five weeks, you know that he's really been going at them with all guns blazing. Like I said earlier, he's called them snakes and vipers. And you would think that after all this, Jesus would cap off his message by saying something like, and because of all this, because of your pride and your foolishness, I'm looking forward to watching you snakes burn in hell forever. But of course he doesn't do that. Instead he says that he wishes he could be like a mother hen and they could be like his chicks. Instead of giving a final condemnation, Jesus gives this expression of tender concern. And even though these are the people who have misrepresented God and taken advantage of the poor and killed the prophets, he still says it anyway. Because what Jesus wants, what Jesus really longs for, is not their punishment but for them to willingly gather themselves to him. That's what he wants. That's what he longs for. As I was preparing for tonight, I found myself reflecting on this idea of Jesus longing. I kept coming back to this idea that Jesus would say <clears throat> that I've longed for something. And uh, just the idea that Jesus wants something, right? Because I think you learn a lot about a person by what they long for. In fact, I would say that you don't really know someone until you have an idea what they want, what they really desire. When you first get to know someone, you ask questions like, where are you from, what's your job, uh, do you have any kids, stuff like that. 
And those questions are fine, but you don't really get to know anybody until you start asking questions like, do you like your job? And you know, if you could have any job in the world, what would it be? Those are the questions that reveal desire, what people long for, and that's how you get to know a person is by finding out those things. And so I thought, well, if Jesus is, like what the writer of Hebrews says, the exact representation of God's being, the exact representation of God's being, what Jesus longs for, what he wants, is this great insight into the character of God. So this passage gives us one insight, right? God longs to be like a mother hen to the people of Jerusalem. But what else does the Bible tell us that God longs for? What does Jesus want? So I took the Greek word for, for long or, or want, as it's used in this passage, the word fellow, the Greek word fellow, and I searched it in the Gospels. And I looked up every time that it showed up. And then I tried to look at specifically every time it showed up where the subject of the verb was Jesus. And the word shows up a lot, but, but it actually doesn't show up too often with Jesus as the subject. Jesus didn't go around a lot saying, I want this, or I want that very much. Which, when you think about it, that makes sense, because he said he came to serve, not to be served. Most of the time, his desires are made evident in his behavior rather than his words. But there are some times, like in our passage tonight, where Jesus specifically says, I want, or I long. So right now, I want to go through those times. There's not a lot of them. There's a handful where I think they demonstrate God's character. And I think it's worth looking at each one, okay? So the first one, uh, the first one is there's a time when a man with leprosy comes to him. This is in three of the Gospels. And the man with leprosy says, Lord, if you are willing, if you are fellow, you can make me clean. And then Jesus answers, I am fellow. I am willing. I want to. I want to make you clean. That's one. Two, twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage that talks about what God wants. And he identifies it with himself. One time is when the Pharisees complain about the way Jesus eats with sinners. And another time is when they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And in both of these cases, Jesus quotes a line from the book of Hosea where God says, I desire, I fellow, mercy, not sacrifice. And in both cases, what Jesus is saying is, if you understood what this meant, this I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you wouldn't be acting like this. Because in both of those cases, the Pharisees are more concerned with religious rules than with the real values behind the rules. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. They're more concerned with sacrifices than with practicing mercy. But God desires, God fellows, longs for mercy more than sacrifice. Another one is uh, in Luke. There's a story. I like this one a lot. There's a story about uh, Jesus and his disciples are going to go to a village. And the village rejects them. They don't want them, them going there. And so James and John say, Lord, do you want... Do you fellow us to call down fire from heaven to destroy this place? As if they could actually do that, but, you know, they ask. And Jesus says, well, it doesn't say exactly what, it's, what Jesus says, but it says he rebuked them. So what we learn there is Jesus does not fellow to destroy this town that's rejected him. Just a couple chapters after that incident, in Luke, we get another one. Jesus says something about how... Um, he, he says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I, how I wish, how I fellow, that it was already kindled. 
Now, if you're like me, you read that and you think, well, wait a second, Jesus came to cast fire upon the earth? But didn't he just say when the disciples asked him, do you want us to cast fire down from heaven? He said, no. Isn't this a contradiction? <laughs> and in the, it's not a contradiction because what Jesus is talking about here is not fire of destruction, but the fire of the Holy Spirit, which he, which he does send in Acts. Um, but what we learn from that is once again um, that Jesus wants something, and what he wants is for people to experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Another one, really down to earth. Um, this is in Matthew. This is right before Jesus miraculously feeds over 4,000 people. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, These people have nothing to eat. I do not want, I do not fellow to send them away hungry. They might collapse on the way back. And I like that one because, you know, we usually think of Jesus as being concerned about our spiritual needs. But in that one, he's expressing this longing, this desire for people just to have food. You know, he, he doesn't like the idea of them listening to him and then getting really hungry on the way back and collapsing. And then finally, this might be the most important one of all, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he knows that in a few hours he's going to be whipped and scourged and hung up on a cross, he prays to the Father and he says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I fellow, but what you fellow. Now, I recognize that verse is a little confusing, because if Jesus is God, then how is it that God is praying to God? And how is it that if Jesus has a will that's different from the Father's will, how can they both be God because they have different wills? Shouldn't their will be the same? And unfortunately, we don't have a, a lot of time tonight to assess the dynamics of the Trinity. Um, but what Orthodox Christianity has affirmed for centuries is this idea that God is a relationship of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a mystery, but they act in perfect union with each other such that we can truly say that they are one. So what we see here in this moment is that oneness being practiced, where Jesus is deferring to the will of the Father. And we see that what Jesus longs for, more than anything else, more than avoiding the pain and suffering of dying on a cross, is to do the Father's will. And I realized I missed just one other one, uh, which is in the Gospel of John, Jesus is praying shortly before he's crucified, and he says, Father, I fellow, I desire that they also, as in the disciples whom you have given me, would be with me where I am, and that they may see my glory, which you have given me. So there you see Jesus longs for his disciples to be with him and to experience his glory. So if Tim has the slide, I'd like to put it up right now. I hope... I hope that wasn't, uh, wasn't boring, but I, I think it's helpful um, to, to look at this summary. It's on two slides, and it just, you know, the whole thing, it's just a quick wrap-up of, of, of all the places where this word fellow appears, giving us insight into what Jesus wants. So here it is, starting from the first one. What does Jesus want? Jesus wants to make a person clean and healed. What does Jesus want? He wants for people to value mercy and love more than religious rules. What does he want? He wants for people to gather to him like chicks to a hen. What does he want? He does not want to destroy those who are unwelcoming toward him. What does he want? He wants for people to experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. What does he want? He wants to feed those who are hungry. 
What does he want? He wants for his disciples to be with him and experience his glory. What does he want? He wants to do the Father's will, even when it comes at great cost to himself. And I don't know about you, but it's so good for me to see that written out like that. You know, look at what Jesus wants. Jesus, the exact representation of God's being. One of the things that we Christians are always asking is, what's God's will, right? Well, if we want to know what God's will is, what God wants, this is a good start. And the good news is that there's nothing in that list about Jesus wanting to destroy you. There's nothing in that list about him longing to bring death. Jesus wants to bring life. He wants to heal, protect, anoint, feed, and share his glory. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And I think we see that in that list. But here's the thing. What Jesus wants is good, but what we want is not always good. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but, but what? But you were not willing. So Jesus is willing to nurture us to life and maturity. And that means God is willing to nurture us to life and maturity. But we have to be willing too. What this verse suggests is that when people don't end up gathered to Jesus, it's not because God doesn't want them to be. It's because they don't want to be. And although Jesus doesn't want to call down fire from heaven on those who reject him, there is a consequence to our unwillingness to be gathered by Jesus. Jesus says to the Pharisees, remember, look, your house is left to you desolate. That's the consequence. When when he says your house, he's actually referring to the Jewish temple. At the center of Jewish worship was the temple. And the temple was supposed to be the place where God's presence resided. It was, in a rather literal sense, supposed to be God's house. So it's so significant when Jesus calls it your house, right? Because he's saying, this is not God's temple anymore. He's saying, look at this temple. It's desolate. The presence of God is gone. The magic is gone. Because the consequence of refusing to be gathered by Jesus is this desolation, spiritual emptiness. That word for desolation comes from the same word that's used for desert. What's desolate is dry and lifeless. And that's what happens to our souls when Jesus wills to gather us, but we are unwilling. I know that I've experienced some of this desolation myself. Maybe you have as well. Because there are times when I just don't want to be gathered by Jesus, if I'm honest. You know, I don't want to be some little chick following Mama Bird. I want to be my own bird. (laughs) But I've noticed that if I try to orbit my life around something other than Jesus, every time I try to do that, I just end up desolate. I end up restless, anxious, I feel purposeless. I'm just drifting. I talked to a guy about it once, and he was like, yeah, your curse is that you love God. He'll haunt you wherever you go. And uh, I think he was right. I don't think that's just true of me. I think that's, that's 
true of most everybody, that God haunts them wherever they go. So the heart of tonight's message is really simple and direct. Jesus wants to gather us. He wants to hover over us and bring us to life and maturity. He's good. He's trustworthy. But we just need to be willing. So we have a choice. Desolation or life. Jesus longs that we would have life. He wants good things for us. God wants good things for us. So the question is, will we be gathered? Will we come to him? Now there's a good chance that if you're here at Tabernacle, you do want to be gathered to him. Because you've, you've chosen to be here. And at Tabernacle, we gather here because we're about gathering around Jesus, right? But I still think that this, this simple message is worth saying. And I got two reasons why. The first is because being gathered to Jesus isn't something we just decide to do once. It's really something we need to decide to do every day. I did a YouTube search on hen with chicks and dozens of videos came up. I could have sat there and watched chickens all day. Uh, But what I noticed in the one video that I watched is that the hen would move and the chicks would go over to the hen and then they'd like pick at the ground for a little while and then the hen would move again and then the chicks would all gather around the hen and they'd pick at the ground some more. And if there was one chick who had just been like, well, I gathered to you and now I'm done, then that chick pretty soon would be all alone and wouldn't actually be gathered to Jesus. So this gathering to Jesus, it requires a daily decision to be sensitive to Christ's leading. Now, if we want to be nurtured to life and maturity, if we want to avoid this spiritual desolation, we've got to be willing to be gathered not just once, but daily, hourly, moment by moment. And the second reason that I think this simple message is still worth saying is because I know there may be some of you here who are trying to decide whether or not you're willing to be gathered by Jesus. You've never said, I want that. And if that's you, I hope you've seen a little bit of evidence tonight that Jesus is someone who's good, someone who's trustworthy. And if you've doubted at all that Jesus wants anything to do with you, I want you to remember who Jesus was talking to when he said this. The Pharisees, the people he just rebuked. There isn't anyone that gets Jesus more frustrated in the Gospels than the Pharisees. Except for maybe the devil. But Pharisees are pretty much his number one people that he's always clashing with. But Jesus still longed to gather the Pharisees. Those snakes, that brood of vipers, he still wanted them to come to him. They just needed to be willing. The last verse in our passage is, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I, and I want to close by, by bringing up that verse because you might be wondering, well, what do I do to show that I'm willing to be gathered? And Jesus gives the answer right there. Remember, Jesus has just said, the temple is desolate. There's spiritual desolation. The presence of God has left the building. And Jesus is going to be leaving soon. But what Jesus is saying is that the way that desolation ends is by looking at him and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It ends by recognizing that Jesus is from God.
When we begin to recognize Jesus for who he is, when we recognize that he is the blessed son of God, that's the first step to ending, to ending that desolation. Jesus is saying, you will not see me again. This desolation will not end until you confess that I am from God. 